Welcome back to Faith with Faith. It's been an extraordinary year. It's been an extraordinary few weeks. It's been extraordinary few days, especially in the United States of America, where my guest today is joining us from. It's uh, it's it's another one of those. They're so awesome. We've got to have them back. Interviews and uh, it's my friend Peter Peter Weiner, and uh, he's just outside DC. It's lunchtime for you, Peter. Is there snow on the ground in DC or not? There is no snow on the ground. It's actually been a relatively snow-free um, winter here, uh, so it's uh, we're it's it's cold, uh, but uh, but but uh, not, nothing that's bringing our country to uh, to, to our knees, or, or or at least McLean. I was there for seven years with you there, and I remember one winter we had so much snow we couldn't see our car outside. It was. Do you remember that one? It's probably about five years ago. Yes, I do. We've had, you know, we've uh, Cindy and I have lived here since the late 1990s, and there have been a couple of years like that. And the one that you recall, which was the last one, that was uh, that was pretty pretty intense. <laughs> I've never been when I first went out to DC to to consider moving out there. I was down at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it was January time. I genuinely have never been so cold in all my life. I <laughs> thought my ears are going to fall off my head. And that, of course, is the time when um, you choose to have your inauguration every four years in the freezing cold of Washington, D.C. And it was that this year. You could see people sitting under blankets and everything. Yes, that's that's true. You, there was a meme of uh, Bernie Sanders, who was who was in a thick jacket with uh, uh, knit mittens that had been uh, made by him by uh, by a friend, and even Bruce Springsteen, who uh, performed at the Lincoln Memorial, at the footsteps of the Lincoln Memorial for the inaugural. Um, special uh commented about how cold it was but it didn't didn't keep uh keep the boss from singing a wonderful song and um and it was actually a, a lovely event and a beautiful fireworks you uh you you would have been moved by it had, had you uh had you been here hello see what i i just want to crack on and and get into this pete because you um you are a uh, you're a writer. You're a journalist. Uh, we've had you on here before, and you were so eloquent, helping us to understand uh, what was going on in America. Really, most of the people that listen to uh, this podcast, Faith with Faith, are based in the UK, but also uh, there is a growing international appeal. You'll be pleased to know, and um, there are some uh, people that listen to this in in the USA and in other parts of the world. I think the entire world has been watching uh, with fascination as events have unfolded, certainly in the last few weeks up to the election and then just past the election. Then, of course, what happened um, just a few days ago in the capital. And what you're so great at, Pete, is being able to uh, help us understand that. And that's certainly the feedback from the last podcast, helping us to understand American politics and American faith, Christianity especially. Are you happy to steer us through some of that uh, the last few weeks again? Absolutely, I'll do the do the best I can. And uh, while I'm pleased to know that your podcast is going to other nations, I'm not surprised. Um, my view is the more people that hear from uh, Jamie Haith uh, around the world, the better it is. So um, I'm I'm delighted to be on with you again, and happy to uh, to talk through and and offer my perspective on on where we've been, where we are, and and where where we might go. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us. I, I, I've been reading some of your different pieces, in New York Times, Washington Post, uh, The Atlantic. You're, you're, you're getting more and more prolific. It's been quite a, f- a few years for you because you were, right from the start, one of the uh, most outspoken critics of Trump. I, I was, you know, actually the first critical piece I wrote on Donald Trump was in 2011. It was in the Wall Street Journal and it was called the GOP and the birther trap. And um, it was a warning to Republicans that said you shouldn't play footsie with a person like this. That This was a racist conspiracy theory. And once you begin playing around with that, bad things can um, can happen. And um, and then and, uh, three weeks after he actually announced he was running for president, so he announced in June of 2015, I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, th- th- three weeks later. So this was in early July, um, which was titled President Donald Trump Just Say No. And the interesting backstory on that, Jamie, is that my editor had a hard time getting that piece placed because the people at the Times thought it was so absurd to have to speak out against Donald Trump and to refute him that he would never go anywhere, that he wouldn't be a force or a factor in the Republican Party, that they didn't understand why I was writing the piece or why the Times should publish it. But thankfully, my editor, who's a good friend and a a wonderful person, pushed to get it in. So really, from the get-go, there was something or some constellation of issues with Donald Trump that deeply worried me um, about him, about the threat he posed to American Christianity, uh, to the Republican Party, and to uh, to the country. Uh, you mentioned the birth of conspiracy. That was, I, I suppose, the the first of many conspiracies. You wrote in November, back in November, in the New York Times. You said there was a time when popularizing such crazed machinations would have caused one to be cast to the outer fringes of American politics. In the case of Mr. Trump, it helped elect him and has created a cult-like devotion among tens of millions of his supporters. And then you go on and say, because of Mr. Trump, conspiracy theorizing is now a central feature of the Republican Party and American politics. So it all began with the, I'm sure it went further back than the birth of conspiracy, the, the, this, this idea that, that, uh, that Barack Obama wasn't born American, therefore could, was not eligible to be American president. But you, you sort of sat there aghast seeing these various theories get traction. Yeah, that's right. That's a good word for it, actually, aghast. Um, it, it was uh, aghast, but not totally shocked, I would say. Um, be, and that's really the reason I wrote the piece in 2011. I don't think I would have warned against it unless I, I was worried that it might eventually get, get traction, which... Uh, which it did, uh, and I'm happy to discuss with, with you um, why why it did. But there's something about conspiracy theories that uh, are particularly pernicious. Um, I would I would say <clears throat> conspiracy theories aren't aren't new um, to human society to human beings. They've been around basically since since the beginning. <clears throat> Um, your country has had them. My country has had them. Other countries have had them. <clears throat> it's part of the human condition. Oh no! Wait, wait, just a second. There, are you telling me that United Kingdom has ever had conspiracy theories? I'll, I'll let I'll, I'll let you answer that and and your uh, and your listeners. But let me just say that at this point, even if you did, we've 
we've gone ahead of you in that competition by quite some distance. Um, I think what, what, what was worrisome about uh, the conspiracy theories, just as a general matter, and then I'll talk about how they're related to Trump and the Republican Party, is um, that they're not just crazy theories, but they involve an assault, a fundamental assault on truth and reality. It causes people to, to leave um, the real world for a fantasy world. Um, and any time that that happens, that's dangerous in, in any realm or arena of human life, whether we're talking about faith and theology or politics or anything else. And if that happens on a broad, grand scale, um, then self-government becomes very difficult because you don't have a common set of facts, a common reality, common authority figures that you can cite, common institutions that you can trust. And so what politics at, at its healthiest is, which is a debate about the interpretation of certain facts and, and how to promote policies and actions that advance the common good and the moral good, that begins to change. And all of a sudden you're in, you're in a realm uh, in which which people don't share the same reality. I've described it, Jamie, before. It's it's like in the past in American politics, I thought about it, you know, if you were talking about conservatives and progressives, liberals and conservatives, uh, Democrats and Republicans, it, it was like climbing a mountain. Uh, there was a similar summit, the same summit. People were just taking different paths to the summit. But now it's like people are living and ascending two completely different mountains. And, and that's worrisome. And conspiracy theories are both a manifestation of that attitude and an amplification of, of those tendencies. And if it gets beyond a certain point, it becomes dangerous and it can even become, it can even become deadly. And what Trump was doing, among other things, with the Republican Party is he was promoting conspiracy theories that um, that had resonance. Now, every in American politics, you know, when you're on the fringe of the right and the left, conspiracy theories exist. They existed when I was in the Bush administration, and and people on the left were saying that the attacks on September 11th, 2001, were an inside job. Um, and uh, and people on the left and the right, there are conspiracy theories about vaccinations. I don't know if you have that in, in, in the United Kingdom, but they exist mm -hmm. in this country. So those things have existed. What's different now is that Donald Trump's appeal extended in the Republican Party. He won both the nomination and the presidency. So you had a conspiracy theorist uh, holding the most powerful office in the world with unmatched reach because uh, of the uh, bully pulpit that he had and because of social media. And the fact that social media exists has allowed conspiracy theorists to uh, congregate uh, online in ways that has never happened in human history. And then they're able to spread their, their, their lies and conspiracies in ways that we've never had with an efficiency that we've never seen before. So all of that was just very, very dangerous. But conspiracy theories don't arise for no reason. It means that the soil is, is, is in a condition that would allow them to rise up. Donald Trump understood that. He planted these, in my estimation, pernicious, malicious seeds, and they grew and they sprouted, and we're now living with the consequences of it. You, you wrote, no amount of evidence can convince that they are wrong. Indeed, the more evidence that's amassed to refute these views, 
the more convinced people become that the conspiracy theory is true. <laughs> so it's so frustrating. As you, you can do all you can to say, look, guys, this is ridiculous. And the more you say this is ridiculous, the more people are convinced. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, and, and I'm not really exactly sure how uh, one works one's way out of this this conundrum, both the conspiracy theory mindset and this larger assault on truth and, and, and reality. You know, I had a lunch conversation at um, early July. Uh, it was a uh, social distance outdoor lunch with a longtime friend um, and somebody I actually had, uh, attended church with for, for, for years and, and had lived in our neighborhood. And this person is a, is a good person um, and uh, successful f- in terms of his profession. Um, and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. We caught up on family and had a very nice conversation. But when it turned to politics uh, and Donald Trump, we had differences, but those were differences that were I felt like we could navigate. I understood his perspective, though I deeply disagreed with it. But when we got onto the issue of COVID-19, the pandemic, and he was making this argument that hydroxychloroquine would cure COVID. And there's no evidence that that's the case. And all the leading epidemiologists in the world, including in the United States, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, and others, said that there's no evidence of this. And he was absolutely insistent that it, that it was. And when I posed to him, I said, so-and-so, I won't tell you his name, um, why do you, do you think that the people who know the most about this subject, these leading epidemiologists in the world, who have a vested interest in finding a cure, both from a humanitarian standpoint, but just as a profession, these people are in the business of stopping diseases, why do you think almost to a person that they uh, insist that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work? And his answer to me was, follow the money, follow the money, yeah. follow the money, that there was this grand conspiracy theory between the so-called deep state in this country and uh, pharmaceuticals. And in the follow-up conversations, email conversations that we had, there was no person I could cite, no study that I sent to him that had any uh, traction with him. And indeed, in response, he sent me links to posts, sites, websites that were conspiracy theorists, but he just wouldn't listen to what I had to say. Um, I wasn't listening to what he was having to say because I didn't think there was any merit to it. And, you know, how you overcome that is, is particularly on, you know, if you, if you take that problem writ large on, in terms of a national challenge, uh, it's, it's not easy to know what, what, uh, what you do. I have some thoughts about it, but, but it's, they're very tentative and it is worrisome. So with Trump leaving the White House, these things don't go away. Right. What, what I, is, where, where, help, us, help me understand, <laughs> not help us, I'm sure everyone else listening understands this perfectly well. Maybe I'm a bit dim, but uh, help me understand. Let's go back two weeks to the, um, to the riots, the insurrection, the uh, sedition uh, at the Capitol building. I was, um, like everyone, watching that, and I just simply couldn't believe what I was seeing. And, and um, I mean, on one level, it was a bunch of people that were saying, you know, we, we protested against this, but there was just too much preparation that went into it, the crowds that were there. 
the um, sort of the ladders and uh, and the weapons that people were carrying. I've, I have a friend who is a Capitol Police officer, and um, I met him. Do you remember when um, I had the opportunity to do an alpha course in the Senate a few years ago? Yes. Such an honor. And I got to know this one guy. I, w- I won't mention his name, but I texted him and said, I hope you're doing okay. And he texted me back this. He said, I'm an emotional wreck. I never anticipated being through anything so horrific like this. I was thrown into a meat grinder. The worst part was the unknown factor. We were completely surrounded. Chaos reigned all around us. I'm lucky I'm talking to you. They could have killed all of us. I would have run out of bullets if they wanted a gunfight. They overran all entry points into the capital. They had weapons, explosives, and they wanted to take hostages. I heard the cries over the radio, the panic in voices, senators crying, pandemonium everywhere. I heard explosions going off and heard shots fired over the radio. Not good. I did my best, but I feel it was not enough. I was sent on a mission to go back into the Capitol building after we had escaped the chamber. I knew better than to go with just one other officer, so I asked three FBI special operations agents, combat teams, to help me. Three badasses had mercy on me, and they assisted me in extracting a trapped senator who was in his hideaway near Ground Zero. Now, that is not a few people protesting about an election or or due process in... That's a riot. Yes, boy, that is an unbelievably poignant and moving and frightening and emotionally vulnerable message. Um, and I'm glad you reached out to, to that officer and I'm glad he trusted you enough to share his interior world and what he was he was going through. I think that's that is such a graphic description of what happened in a very helpful one because of course he was he was right in the belly of the beast whereas mm. the rest of us were watching and it was horrifying enough as as you said to to uh to to watch it and, and i was really on the verge of tears and watching it and, and in the aftermath I, I i i felt emotions that are not common to me which is real anger uh anger at the, the people who did it anger at trump for having in uh uh, provoked it, uh, and anger at the Republican Party for having not lifted a finger uh, to to uh, to to stop it. But you're quite right there. This was not an accident. And since the the insurrection effort, this this murderous riot, five people died as a result of it. There's been a lot of investigations, both journalistic and and otherwise. And the more we learn the more of what you said uh, is being confirmed, which is this was well-planned. Um, this, these were uh, QAnon, this con- crazy conspiracy theory in the United States, white supremacists and others communicating um, via social media to organize this um, this effort. And there's an investigation now on whether there may have been Republicans in the House who were complicit in this by giving tours prior to the insurrection attack. Um, so uh, these people understood better what the layout of the Capitol was. I don't think that there's been a determination on that investigation yet, but it certainly merits looking looking into. Look, this was not um, a, an isolated episode. This was not sui generis. The way I've described it, Jamie, is that this was an almost inevitable capstone to the Trump era. Um, uh, it wasn't clear to me and, and to others, I think, how the it would particularly manifest itself, but there was very little question that this would not end well, that this would end 
in a very ugly way and potentially in a violent way. It had to, um, because you can't have a leader of a country um, who's a demagogue, who stokes the passions in the way that Donald Trump did and not imagine that it would play itself out in a very, very ugly fashion. This is the kind of leader, Donald Trump, that the American founders warned against, that Abraham Lincoln, who I would say is our greatest, not only our greatest president, but a greatest American, warned against. Lincoln gave a speech when he was a young man. It was, I guess, in his late 20s, a young men's lyceum speech in 1838, where he warned about mob violence and mob mentality and the dangers of if a leader uh, in the United States of a certain quality uh, and cast of mind um, took office and inflamed those passions. And, and this was what the founders worried about, which is the reason our system of government is the way it is, and there are certainly limitations to it, the ch checks and balances, separation of powers, because it slows things up in a way that parliamentary systems does not. But what the founders were worried about, one of the things they were worried about was to create a system of government that would allow the passions of the people to cool and to set up a system of government that would um, keep mob mentalities from, from, from rising, uh, rising up. But they worried about a figure like Donald Trump um, and, and he arose and he put a tremendous stress test on our institutions. In the end, I think the institutions by and large held up. He, he was forced out of office, Joe Biden is president, but it created a tremendous amount of, um, of damage. And this is a traumatized country. Um, and a lot of the tears that, uh, that, that flowed uh, during the Biden inauguration uh, speech and that day, uh, they weren't primarily, I think, tears for Joe Biden, whatever you think of him and his speech. I think they were primarily tears of a traumatized country. And as you know, from your own work as a pastor and knowledge of human psychology, when you're in the midst of a trauma, your brain filters out certain information because it knows that it can't process all of it at once. Mm -hmm. And so when you deal with trauma victims, um, people who are the victims of abuse and other things, um, you, you know, you, you, you get disassociation that happens in the midst of a trauma because the brain is working to protect the body. But once that trauma is over, those emotions have to be processed. And I think we're in the midst in this country of, of processing some of the trauma of the last four years. But the, the, what I was saying a little bit earlier, this, the, just because Trump leaves doesn't mean that these issues don't go away. And part of that trauma is trying to work out how to work towards unity, as Biden was, was trying to say. We are the United States of America. Is that just a pipe dream? I don't think so. Uh, right now, we're not a United States of America. We're, we, 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 uh, we share a continent, but not a country. Uh, and I agree with you very much that, that a lot of the poisons, uh, the toxins that are in the system aren't going to disappear in a post-Trump presidency. And again, it's important to say that uh, there were conditions that allowed Donald Trump to take power. It wasn't as if these, the, these conditions came out of nowhere. He um, he saw an opening and he, and he took it and he made everything, everything worse. But the fact that he's no longer president doesn't mean that, that his supporters are going to disappear or these um, malicious and malignant attitudes are going to disappear. Let me tell you what grounds for hope that I have. And I hope there, I trust that there, there are hope rooted in, in, in reality. The first thing is just to use an analogy. Um, 
I think of Donald Trump as as a uh, figurative Bowie knife in, that's been in our civic side for the last four years. And now that Bowie knife's been removed. Now, when you remove a knife from a person's side, it doesn't mean that the bleeding stops or that the healing is complete by any means, but it is the precondition for healing to occur. And I think that you just had to get rid of Donald Trump from the presidency. I don't think, I think it's hard to overstate how much damage was inflicted on this country because Donald Trump was president, the power of his office, the use of his tweets and social media, and to have that stopped has got to help. Um, secondly, the fact that he's been banned from Twitter um, and other social media platforms, I think, is 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 going to help too. Um, so that's that's a step in in the right direction. I also think that Joe Biden, whatever one thinks of his policies and his philosophy, and he hasn't been throughout his career a person that's inspired a lot of people in terms of his political profile. I think he brings to this moment something that's important. And I'll tell you the thing that, at least from my perspective, is most appealing about Joe Biden. And that is that he is a man who has experienced enormous grief and loss and suffering in his life. In the early 1970s, his wife and daughter were, were killed in a horrific car accident. His two uh, children, Bo and Hunter, his two sons, were, um, were almost killed. They were in the hospital, broken bones, broken hips, and all the rest. Um, and that was an unbelievably devastating blow to Biden. Um, and then, uh, fast forward uh, to probably a decade or so ago, um, maybe a little less than that, his son, really the apple of his eye, Bo Biden, died of brain cancer. So this is a man acquainted with grief, and he took the grief and the loss and the suffering, and he redeemed it in a sense, um, rather been, than being destroyed by it. Um, he allowed those moments to make him a, a more empathetic person. And uh, it is known about Joe Biden, almost everybody who knows him, including Republicans over the years, that he is that, a deeply empathetic person and was beloved by a lot of Republicans um, during his Senate career. And he's a person of deep Catholic faith. And I think that faith sustained him and deepened him and in a sense layered him as a human being. And so just in terms of his emotional uh, and you know, dispositional approach to life and to politics, I think he's probably about as good as we could hope in terms of healing the, the, uh, the nation, but it's going to take a lot of work. Some of it's going to be top down. Some of it's going to be bottom up. Another thing I'll say about this in terms of your point about the Trump supporters and, and these poisons, well, Trump supporters not going away and the poisons not being drained immediately. I did sense, Jamie, something of an inflection point with the events of January 6th. Not a complete one, not a total yeah. one by any means. But you have people like Mitch McConnell, who had been Senate Majority Leader, clearly attempting to quarantine Donald Trump. The fact that McConnell said he would consider convicting uh, Trump of, of of impeachment. This trial is going to happen in this country in a couple of weeks. The fact that McConnell is basically saying it's a vote of conscience to the other Republican senators. I don't know how that vote's going to come out. I I'd be surprised if Trump were convicted. But there's absolutely no question that McConnell, who had been 
a foot soldier for, for Trump for those many years. And many others who are Republican lawmakers who just, you know, uh, got into line behind Trump, even though they knew better, they want to distance the Republican Party from Trump. Now, they don't know quite how to do it. Um, they're casting about. And the fact is that Trump has tremendous amount of, of resonance with a base of the party. And that's always what's what, what, what feared them. But the question is, or the way to think about it seems to me is there are some people who are simply unreachable, QAnon followers, white supremacists, the most radical devoted elements of the Trump uh, Trump base. I think that it's almost a cult-like hold. But there are people, it seems to me, who are reachable. And then the question becomes, how do you give those individuals both off-ramps and on-ramps, off-ramps from the conspiracy theories and the hate, on-ramps to become part of the solution again and part to back to politics as it's normally practiced? And that's the task that I think an awful lot of us in different spheres of, of life in America have to think through. One of the things uh, is fascinating talking to you. The, the, the time that we have left, we've, we've, we've got a good chunk of time to, to talk about this. And you need to help me understand, even though I was a, a pastor in, uh, in America for seven years, uh, I don't think I really fully understood this. And uh, to anyone listening, in that crowd outside the Capitol building, there was a very big banner, not just one, but there was one very big one. I think you know the one I'm talking about yeah. that said Jesus saves on it. Now, I find that just so fascinating, heartbreaking. I, I just don't know what to do with that. And can you help me understand once and for all, probably not in the time we have left, Christianity in America? Um, and how how it all gets sort of embroiled and enmeshed. And l let me pitch it like this. I was reading on Twitter. This is um, this is a very interesting piece that was written on Twitter by a at Sky Jathani. He says this: My faith in Christ was settled at eighteen. After that, my struggle was not with belief as much as with believers. In college, I wrestled mightily with identifying myself openly as a Christian. Others, both in the culture and on my campus, had made the label toxic. Christians were not respected. Some Christians on campus welcomed the disrespect as authentication of their faith. After all, Jesus was disrespected too. What they missed, however, was that Jesus was maligned for his compassion, love, association with the lowly and sinners, and for rebuking the powerful and self-righteous. Christianity on my campus was maligned for being intolerant, bigoted, unintellectual, partisan, arrogant, mean, and condemning. This reputation was earned by the behavior of some believers at my school, but more by the national figures leading the religious right. Simply put, the disrespect didn't come because Christians were emulating Jesus, but because they were not. That's why I struggled. To identify myself with this twisted antichrist Christianity would be a betrayal of the true Christ to whom I belonged. That was 1994. Today, I have teenage kids, including one attending my alma mater. As we talk about faith, I hear echoes of my own struggle in them, and my heart breaks. The idolatry and hypocrisy that existed in American Christianity a generation ago, now far, far worse. 
My kids know faithful Christians. They've seen authentic, Christ-centered, Christ-centric, Sermon on the Mount Christianity. But the wider witness of the US church is so repulsive that I worry about the future of their faith. A significant percentage of white evangelicals fear Joe Biden, BLM, Antifa, and the Libs. They're out to destroy their faith. Driven to delusion by their fear, these Christians cannot see that their desire to defend the faith is precisely what's destroying it, and they're losing an entire generation in the process. When the autopsy, I'm nearly finished, when the autopsy on evangelicalism is done, the cause of death will not be liberalism, social justice, or wokeness. It will be Christian nationalism. After the events of last week, in my view, its death cannot come soon enough. I want the sick, malignant church to die because like my 18-year-old self, I still believe in the Christ who raises the dead. And I pray that, quote, what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Pete Wainer, please comment on that. Well, the first thing I'd say is that's beautifully uh, written and powerfully written. Um, and it has resonance with me, and I'm sure it has resonance with with you. Um, for me, the Trump era, the most painful elements and and part of the Trump era was exactly what what this writer is getting at, which is the tremendous damage um, that was done to the Christian witness um, in the name of of Christianity. Um, I've gotten many emails about this. I, I'm guessing you have too. And when you were a pastor here in the States, you know, we had conversations about it when we had lunch and, and I'm, I'm certain that you, you got notes from different people. I've heard from pastors, Jamie, all across the States from, from the South to the Pacific coast to elsewhere, giving me specific examples of, of, of that. And just generally speaking, about um, what one pastor told me was a generational catastrophe, um, particularly for younger people who were seeing this moral freak show play out uh, in the name of Christianity and how it dri is driving people from the church. So what was what you read from um, really has unfortunately resonance um, with me and I understand it. <clears throat> what, um, what explains it is a great question. Um, and I think it's going to take years for us to try and fully wrap our minds around it. I ha I'll tell you, as I pro have processed it, what I think has, has gone on and what I've seen. Um, one of them is that um, to a degree that I hadn't fully anticipated or, or, or foresaw uh, is the subordination of, of Christianity uh, to, in this case, politics. You know, when I became a person of the Christian faith, um, one of the things that I was intimidated by, I remember having a conversation with my <clears throat> sister about this, who had become a Christian. She's five years older than I am, and she was very helpful in my own pilgrimage. And it was I was intimidated by how Paul spoke about uh, Christianity and the transformation um, on the hearts of Christians. And I remember saying to Patty, how do you fall in love with someone that you've never met? And how can your heart be captured in that way? But that's how really Paul was describing uh, even with all the fallenness of, of, of human beings, that as followers of Christ, we were supposed to be transformed, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to the, to the great things of, of, of faith. And honestly, Jamie, throughout my Christian life, if you had asked me at that point, I would have said to my younger self, uh, I, I thought that I would have seen many more transformed lives <clears throat> through the Christian journey. Not that I haven't seen transformed lives and not that my life hasn't been deeply impacted for the good 
by people who are devoted followers of Christ. But it hasn't been what I thought it would be. I don't think it's been what Paul had in mind when he wrote, and I think it probably grieves Jesus deeply. I think part of what's going on is is human psychology, um, that there is uh, such a thing that social scientists refer to as confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. And so all of us bring to everything in life, whether it's faith or any other area, um, life experiences, family of origins, the community that we're a part of, the tribe that we're a part of, the people who have taught us, and they shape our our, our, our outlook, our mental uh, approach to things, even our emotional approach to things. And, and as those things get set in our mind and in our hearts, we, we begin to process things through those prisms and we begin to fit things according to how we, we want them to be. And I think quite honestly, for a lot of Christians, uh, and this is probably m- mostly true, but not exclusively true by any means, with Southern Christians, there's a kind of cultural connotation to Christianity. It has nothing to do with Christianity itself or the teachings of Jesus, but has simply woven its way into what a certain kind of culture, cultural view. There's a book that uh, that came out recently called uh, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, which was written by a historian at Calvin uh, University um, about how there was a certain view of masculinity uh, and a toxic masculinity that somehow conjoined itself to to the Christian faith in a way that's not at all true to to Christianity. Um, and so I think what happened is that people began from uh, began to interpret Scripture uh, and Jesus and the teachings of Jesus uh, through the prism of a certain political ideology. That's not exclusive to the right. I think the left does this too. I just think it's more pronounced and more dangerous and more harmful. Uh, in the American right now. And I would also say that there are feelings uh, that have been many years in the making, uh, some warranted much exaggerated in my estimation, but they're feelings of grievance. Um, Conservative Christians feeling like they've been dishonored and disrespected. Um, And that had created a lot of resentments and bitterness. And those emotions can catalyze a lot of really negative stuff. And I think a lot of Christians came to see Donald Trump, not as a person of faith, but as a, you know, if, if you talk to, to some of his supporters, as a kind of Cyrus figure uh, who, would, who would protect them and defend them. And the way I've described it, Jamie, I think I may have used this in conversations with you several years ago, is that they view Donald Trump as bringing a gun to a cultural knife fight. And it's a knife fight they wanted to win. And they felt like Donald Trump would destroy the enemy that was a threat to them and their family and their country. Now, how you square that with the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount um, is beyond me. It's impossible to do. But the human mind has ways of rationalizing things uh, that's pretty extraordinary. And and I'm sure I suffer from that, too. And so do you. And so do we all. All of us are blind to certain things. But the gap between what Jesus taught and what we say as believers every Sunday and how that works itself out in in our daily lives and in our political lives and this this conjoining of Jesus to Christian nationalism, which I think in and of itself, quite apart from the experience of America, is almost an oxymoron. I mean, I would say that based on my understanding of the teachings of Jesus, 
he was, if anything, an anti-nationalist figure. He was yeah. he was pushing back against nationalism at his time and really through every time. He was a person who was trying to break down the dividing walls, including among nations and and different different cultures. So I, I think that that happened. And then the other thing, which you would understand much better than I as a, as a, as a pastor, which is, I think an awful lot of us who are followers of Jesus, that the affections of our hearts have grown cold. And I think when you have the superstructure of religion and the language of religion, the vernacular of religion, but not the reality of Christ in our hearts, an awful lot can go wrong. And, you know, I, I think in some ways it gets down to something that simple when, it, when, when we're discussing the issue of Christianity, which is we've wandered away from our first love. And once you do that, um, religion has so many things that are dangerous. The self-righteousness, the censoriousness, um, the, the, the feelings of resentment, the Manichaeanism, the feeling that this is the children of light against the children of darkness, all of those things kick in and get into play. I would say that if you were a genuine, authentic follower of Christ, your heart was transformed. Um, you believe, of course, in moral truth and defend it and defend in righteousness, but there are elements of grace, a generosity of spirit, a tenderness and empathy that also ought to weave itself very centrally into, into, into our hearts and our attitudes and our conduct. And when that's lost, a lot of bad things can happen. And I think we're seeing a lot of bad things happen. And I think, you know, the task that I face and you face di differently because of where you live now, but a lot of people in this country face is having to pry apart this sort of Christendom from Christ. And it's not easy um, I mean, you and I would say this all the time, which is, look, Christianity has to be judged ultimately on who Jesus was, on the crucifixion, on the resurrection, on, the, on who he was, not on who his followers are, because we're flawed and we're failed. But we also know that the reality is in life that, of course, people, particularly people who are not believers, but including people who are believers, are going to look at that community and that tribe and say, what are these people like? What do they believe? How do they act? What do they stand for? What do they stand against? And if in making that assessment, you make that the judgment, that these people are acting in ways that are, as you described it, um, you know, and, and your friends have described it, which is judgmental um, and, and, and without grace and harsh, um, then you're just not going to want anything to do with that community. And you're going to assume that if the followers of Jesus are acting that way, then maybe there's something that was wrong with Jesus. Now, you and I, as followers of Jesus, know that's not true. But this task now, which is just flat out the uh, evangelical task, the task of presenting Jesus to a watching world, has made, been made infinitely harder in this country because of the Trump years. And so for me, it's been the most difficult and most painful and most dispiriting thing of all, but we can't give up uh, on it. It's happened before you had the, you know, you had the Dutch reformed church in South Africa. You had the German church during the rise of Nazism, even in America, during the debate of the civil war, you, you had evangelicals who were on the right side of the slavery and abolition question, but you of course had people who were on the wrong side too, and used verses in the Bible to, to justify slavery. So this is an ongoing struggle. Uh, and in any moment in time, it just takes people 
of, of, of faith who really love Christ like you to present a, you know, a, a different and more winsome and more true picture of Jesus. But, uh, but that job's harder now. I, I, I couldn't quite believe that the that Christian nationalism actually has its own flag. I was reading about this. Um, and of course it's red, white, and blue. <laughs> and, um, it has a cross in the top left corner. You've seen it. Um, the red symbolizes the blood of Christ. The blue symbolizes virtue, I think. Is that right? Or integrity. And, and the white symbolizes purity, a metaphor which should give some serious pause for thought, I would suggest. And, and the thing about a flag is a standard is you, you raise it because you're, a, you're an army, which again is slightly worrying. I know there's plenty of, you know, sort of uh, Christian symbolism of being an army but rallied against the forces of darkness, not against our fellow human beings. Yeah. And I think this is the, this is the thing. I think so much of the narrative of Trump has been winning. Everything's about winning. Right. We're going to win this. We're going to be the best at this. It's going to be the top, you know, which flies in the face of so much of Scripture. Think of that beautiful Scripture in Philippians 2. May our attitude, I'm going to try and remember it. May our attitude be as that of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness, he humbled himself, even to death on a cross. And then, and then it says, and therefore God exalted him. But the service came first. The, the, the emptying out of himself came first. It's not about winning. If anything, it's about losing. Yeah. Oh. No, that's, that's a beautiful rendition. It's, it may be the, the main sort of Christological set of verses that Paul ever wrote. Um, and you're, you're so right. And the fact that that's been lost is, is difficult. I, I just wanted to add one other thing to what you said because you're so right about the Christian nationalism. And like you, I, I was on a Zoom call with some people and they asked me, what was the image, what were the images that each of the people on the call would take away from the events of January 6th? And one of the things that I named was that flag, that Jesus saves flag as this mob was about to storm the Capitol and people were about, about to die and it would be done in the name of Jesus. And as you had that flag that said Jesus saved, you also had a constructed gala with a noose hanging from it as um, as well. But I would also say, just to complicate this a little bit more um, in terms of the task before us is, you know, many, many people I know wouldn't associate themselves at all with the violence and, and that particularly a malicious form of Christian nationalism uh, and what happened in, on January 6th. Um, that I, I think is a small group of people within Christianity for, in this country. But the danger or the disappointment to me is that you didn't have more people who don't associate with those, those groups per se speak out against them. And that you had many white evangelical leaders in this country of great prominence defend and support Donald Trump every step along the way, they were complicit in what happened on the 6th. They weren't responsible for it, but they were complicit. And they didn't speak out when they should have spoken out. Um, and 
even after those events, um, they didn't find the voice to be able to say what needed to be said. So it wasn't just this sort of radioactive, toxic core of Christian nationalism, but the concentric circles out from it that really, I think, demanded people who knew better or should have known better to speak out and to say, this is not what Christianity is, 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 is about. There, there needed to be a, diff- a counter-narrative to the story that was being told about what white evangelicals in America believed, but there weren't enough counter-narrators to do that. The reality, as you know, is that in the white evangelical world, which is, you know, something between, depending on which survey you trust, 18, 20, 25% of this country, there were a lot of different views about Donald Trump and about Trumpism and about Christian nationalism. Um, So the indictment is not against the entire white evangelical world in America, but the problem was that several people of prominence gave one narrative, which I think was, was a was a malicious narrative, and there were just not enough other people to give a counter-narrative. And so to a watching world, they just assumed, oh, so this is what white evangelicals must believe because nobody's telling us a different story except for, you know, a handful of, of, of folks. So, you know, there are costs to that and there are costs to not speaking up. And I say that as someone who appreciates the very much the trickiness and never felt that people of, uh, of faith, you know, Christian leaders, Christian pastors, and so forth should get involved in politics. I think that's tricky territory. Nobody signs up for doing that when you, you know, when you become a pastor. But I do think at some point and at some moments, it's, uh, you, people are called to do things that they otherwise might not be comfortable doing. Um, and, um, and, and so there's, there, there's, a, there's a cost to the fact that there was too much silence. But what's done is done, and now the question is what repair work can be done, and that's just going to require people of faith to give a different version um, of what Christianity is all about and to make it inviting um, again. It's been such a delight talking to you today. It's, it's, I, I think I say this quite a lot because I just I love talking to people, but I, I really could talk to you all day. <laughs> Sometimes on these pods, I ask my guests, to uh, to close us in prayer but i i feel like i want to to be the one praying would you join me in prayer right now um, as as america steps into a, a new season um please know that we in the uk love america um you have our full backing and support i know we talk a lot about the special relationship but it's true And nothing that we have said today, certainly I know not you and certainly not me, is in any way critical of America or Americans. Um, We just want to see you prosper as a nation and uh, and know peace and God's grace as you step into this new season. Should we pray together? I would love that. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for Pete. I thank you for the chance to talk today. I thank you for friendship. I thank you for uh, conversation and dialogue, even if views aren't the same. And I pray, Father, your blessing of peace on the nation of America as it steps into this brand new season. We pray your blessing upon Joe Biden 
and his administration. And we do ask, Lord, for healing. We ask for the unity that we believe is possible. We ask, Lord God, for uh, healing to the deepest parts, the deepest fractures in the nation of the USA. And we pray, Lord, that it would rise up once again to, to take its place on the world stage, leading us, leading us all in so many different ways. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And I, I pray, Lord, if we've touched on anything that people disagree with, then, then they'd be able to take that in the spirit that this is, is recorded in, that we would all get to know you better and shine your love in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for, for the conversation. Thanks for being such a devoted friend of America. And, um, and above all, thanks for your ministry of, um, of grace, which is touching a lot of, uh, a lot of hearts. Well, thank you for all you do. If people want to read your stuff, um, what's the best place to point them towards? Tell us about your books and uh, what you're writing at the moment. You bet. Uh, if you go to the Ethics and Public Policy Center and Google my name, uh, that uh, that includes my writings, or you could uh, Google my name in New York Times or my name in the Atlantic, and they they have uh, all of my essays and columns that have been been written. Um, I'm just doing a um, uh, a new uh, a preface uh, to my book, The Death of Politics: How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. That was written in 2019. It's coming out this uh, summer, the summer of 2021. So just completed that. And, um, and now I'm trying to turn my attention to um, some of the topics we talked about, which is uh, how to heal, how to repair, um, how to regain um, our love for, for things worthy of our love. Uh, so I'll, I'll be writing about politics. I'll continue to write about faith um, and, um, and about the things that, uh, that hopefully can lead, lead us to a broader and more sunlit uh, uplands. Lord bless you with all of that and bless you for being the, uh, now I think it has to be official faith with hate American correspondent. <laughs> you, you are, whether you like it or not, that's what you are. That's actually one of the, one of the better appellations in my life. So I'm proud to have it. Stick that on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it done. <laughs> Peter Weiner, thank you so much. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. Blessings to you and the family. You've been listening to Faith with Hate. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please do subscribe, do review it, do rate it, and we'll see you again soon. Much love.